Hello, Manifestors. We are back with another earth-shattering episode. Wow. It is your host, Blair. And your host, Rebecca. And we are taking on something we've been teasing for... Tantalizing. Probably years at this point. Um, and weirdly, I still feel like we've only... I personally only brushed the surface of my topic. <laughs> but before we get into flight in all its forms, let's let's talk about... Let's talk about what's up. Rebecca, talk to me. I heard you went to your first ever bachelorette party. I did go to my first ever bachelorette party and it was great. I've been, I have like a, a bad reputation for my fear of large social gatherings that involve a lot of high octane socializing, um, but I overcame you my are, fear. No, you don't have a fear. Well, I have a reluctance, maybe. <laughs> you have a reluctance, but I think you secretly love it and you're just you just talk a big game in case you ever want to dip, which wow. I respect. Wow. I mean, that's a call out, an on air call out that, you know, as <laughs> the editor in chief here, I might just excise for my own personal benefit. I think benefit. Rebecca's a secret extrovert, but go on. Wow. I mean is... you have you have more podcasts than your average Joe, is all I'll say. But I don't, like, attach my real identity, really, to any of them. Like, I don't promote them in my personal no, life. No, I know, like, but I'm just saying. Except like, for Manifest Destiny, because, you know, the Manifestors are literally all of our friends. <laughs> I mean, the Manifestors keep it close. They're keeping it tight. No, I think, I mean, we have a large German fan base that's raring that for the new true. season. That is true. Shout out to our German fan base, whoever you are. As always. I'd love if you would reach out so we could connect personally and maybe bring you on the podcast to get a national <laughs> perspective. We'll do it. Don't we will also come there for a, for a live show. You just need to provide oh my God, yes. lights and housing. That, a live that, show from we'll, the Berghain? Mm-hmm. Okay, so... So tell us about your bachelorette experience. I mean, it was great. Uh, I was universally referred to as Bachelorette Becca because I was more fun than anybody, I think, expected from me. I oh, really yeah. cosplayed like we weren't still living in a pandemic. Um, Wait, what was the location? It was in Charleston. So, oh, you know, my God. It's not a, not a thing down there. It's just... The bachelorette capital of the world. Yeah. It's the bachelorette capital of the world. Um it was that very much. We took a boat out during the day and, you know, the Charleston Harbor is a brown body of water. But lo and behold, <laughs> we start leaving the harbor. No, and yeah, you it's turn that corner. It's beautiful. No, it wasn't ever really beautiful. But it's 1030. <laughs> I've only had one drink and I see just as we're pulling out of the harbor, two fins. And I say, oh, my gosh, everyone. I just saw two fins come up in the harbor and everyone's like, Becca, you're drunk. And I was like, maybe, <laughs> you know, my tolerance is low. It's very early to be drinking. Uh, whatever they were, they weren't even like Trulies. They were these fruit punch things that tasted like high C and they were delicious. Ugh. And they only learned after drinking like six, they were 7% alcohol. So ill advised. So, like glass of wine status? Pretty much. So I had one of those and I was like, all right, maybe I was hallucinating. You just never know at this age and level of general, you know, anxiety and psychosis. So sure. I wrote it up to the group think that I was wrong. And then wouldn't you know, about 20 minutes later, there are dolphins like chasing our boat and like going under the boat and jumping up alongside and it was magical so the dolphins blessed us i love marine animals like that mostly manatees but i'll fuck with the dolphin dolphins will fuck with you too and they won't be nice about it they are the rapists of the sea 
They are. I mean, that's that's true. Did you know that hippos are like the most vicious land animal? Yeah, and dolphins are the most vicious sea animals, and they have like the same common ancestor. So like their brains are very similar in so far as that they want to deflect inflict as much pain on other people as possible and dolphins are like sexual predators like oh yeah no that's yeah. well known well they known don't fact. just rape other dolphins no. they rape like like otters stuff like that well, i've upsetting. never heard of that can you back that up with a peer-reviewed case study i 100 percent cannot back that up wow i have no idea if that's even really true somebody whoever told me that could have been lying i mean but reach I out if you've got any intel on dolphins <laughs> raping otters I mean, I feel okay, like I got to already taking a super dark turn. Yeah, like super it's, dark. It, we are four minutes into recording, and I think I've already had to cut about fifteen percent of this out. So we're off to a great start. This has got okay. literally nothing to do with what we're talking about today, but I appreciate you bringing up my first ever bachelorette. It was a time. Well, I'm just proud of you. Thank I'm you. Proud of you. I know that's real peer to peer recognition. Um, you know, I'm personally, as I'm sure you are, in a very dark space about the uh, ongoing threat to female bodily autonomy, which we're not going to really dive into today even though that is what's happening in live history as we call it in the current moment while we are recording so. we're not going to talk about it but i will say and i said this to becca this morning is like i'm perhaps in a very intense state of denial but i've just been like it's a draft baby <laughs> i have a lot of crazy shit in my drafts like until it gets pu- until they publish it it's like to me i'm like this is hypothetical should we be militarizing yeah absolutely I mean, like let's protest but that's the positivity i need Exactly. It's just a draft. If like if if every draft I made was just public information, we'd be, I'd be in jail. Yeah, you jail. would definitely be in jail. <laughs> wow. Okay. Wow. Well, that's a really like inspiring take, and um, I I hope that by the time this episode is released, that's still true. <laughs> it's revealed to be a draft. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, get ready to be uh, off, Stephen. That's that's my new name. I'm ready for it. Okay, so we're not talking about abortion, reproductive rights, bachelorettes, or any of that today. We're talking about flight and the American dream. And we're talking about the majesty of watching a vessel rise up into the sky as if from nowhere. The majesty and the terror. Defying gravity. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I mean, could burst into song, but neither of us are singers. So (laughs) I think instead Blair is just going to take it away with our first segment today. What are we talking about, Blair? So we are talking about the Wright brothers and the very first flight, ever heard of them. And I got to tell you guys, so A, like, did I do a very good job, like, researching this? No. But I also think I learned some important stuff, which is I'm not interested in the physics or mechanics of flight. Great. Me neither. So there's going to be some stuff that maybe we just... If you're looking for facts and details about rockets and propulsion and things, you've come to the wrong podcast. That's not what we're about. We never purported to be about that. So instead, we're going to talk about our feelings around these things. So let's get into it. I am going to just focus on the things that I found interesting about the Wright brothers. And so that for for me, that means that it's categorized into three three categories. Early life, flying. (laughs) And after. Great. And that's honestly, the that's flying, all you need to know. The flying is going to be a lot less prominent than one would think. We're <laughs> for an ID on, you know, the Wright Brothers flight. But anyway, let's just get into it. We've got the Wright Brothers, Orville Wright and Wilbur Wright. Um, Strong names. They, 
were both born in 1871 and 1867, respectively. Hmm. Um, they are the aviation engineers that we love. Um, they are actually born in Dayton, Ohio, and that's where they um, received a lot of their skills. So Ohio loves to brag about how it's connected to the space race and how it's connected to the Wright brothers and how it is like the cradle of aviation pioneering. Um, so I'm sure that will come up in yours as well. So do you have astrology signs for these guys? Like, that's my number so, one question. Like, what what are the signs? What do we got here? So I do. So we've got Orville, Orv, as we call him, uh-huh. was born August 19th. So he's actually right on that cusp. He's a Leo. Leo. Yep. And then we've got Wilbur, April 16th. So he's an Aries. So what we've Ooh. got here is, is two fire signs, Ooh. two natural leaders. Um, just a lot of energy, a lot of passion, and, you know, it's a fire sign, they're blazing a trail. Like, that's what they're really interested in doing. So, to me, these fit perfectly, and I super agree. Like, they both seem like Aries Leo natives, I would guess, fire signs, just based on what I know about them. Um, Did they have any other siblings, or just the two of them? Oh, they had, they were one of seven. Holy moly. Um, so it makes it a little sad that they got to be best friends and get super rich together and the rest of their fam didn't. Yeah, bummer. <laughs> That's something I'm going to focus on later. Yeah. But, but so anyway, just to give you some very quick reasons we love them is that they invented, built, and fly, flew the world's first successful motor-operated airplane. So motor is really important because before there was a lot of like flight, interest in flight, interest in that stuff, but they were mostly gliding. So they made the first controlled, sustained flight of a powered, um, heavier-than-air aircraft with the Wright Flyer, as it was called, on December 17th, 1903. Wow. Um, Should be noted that that's during Sagittarius season, which is the third and final fire sign. Wow. So these men were fuego. Um, And this happened in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, in the Outer Banks. Um, which I didn't really know where in Carolina, North Carolina it was. It's like straight up like on the main drag of the Outer Banks. So that's just kind of interesting. Like I guess if you go to the Outer Banks, as I as one is wont to do, it's very easy to just pop into the museum and like see where it really went down and stuff. So wow. just a just a quick little plug for Kitty Hawk, which is now known as Kill Devil Hills. What? What? Not not, not sure. What was why. wrong with Kitty Hawk? That's such a delightful, confusing name. Well, no, it's still called Kitty Hawk, but it's like an, a region of Kill Devil Hills. Ew. <laughs> Very know. dark. So they were also the first to invent aircraft controls that made fixed wing powered flight possible. Uh-huh. So as you can tell by the way I read that sentence, we're yeah. getting out of the depth of what I understand. Losing interest right, fast. Right when we go into fixed wing powered flight. Yeah, I'm um, good on that. So I will just go go into a little more about their early life because this it's their childhood was a little was a little kooky. So uh-huh. they were two of seven children. Um, they had English and Dutch ancestry and sorry. So Wilbur was born in Indiana. Orville was born in Dayton. Their dad was a bishop. So they moved around all the time. And is it legal? I thought he's he's a clergyman. He's a bishop in Church of the United Brethren in Christ. So I guess it was just kind of like a newfangled, some sort of Protestant thing. He wasn't like a Catholic bishop. Oh, just some of that Protestant thing. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think it's probably like a less popular Protestant church that still had okay. bishops or whatever. Okay. Um, so yeah, just a random fun fact, but on their mom's side, they were related 
um, like kind of distantly, but still significant to the Vanderbilt family. Oh. Um, but they never had that Vanderbilt money ever. So they were a pretty itinerant um, family. And the, the dad was very insistent. He never gave them middle names. He just tried to make their first names super super like impactful and distinctive so he named they were both named after um clergymen that he admired and they went mostly by will and orv <laughs> to their friends as you would too if your name was wilbur or orville yeah exactly i mean i like orv <laughs> i like orv but not orville except I, I orville peck is iconic so maybe it's it, coming back it grows on you but anyway um so most people call them that, and they were kind of known as, like, the bishop's kids or the bishop's boys. So, like, whatever town they were in, they spent a lot of their childhood and time in Dayton, um, Ohio, but they did move around a ton. Um, like, Iowa, all sorts of stuff, um, just to – and then – so then this is this is the kernel of, of innovation, is that when they were living in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, their, brought, their father brought home a toy helicopter for Orb and Will – and it was based on the, an invention of a French aeronautical pioneer, um, but it was, you know, like a little toy. Just it was like made a of prototype? Paper. It was like... made of like bamboo cork. No, but it was also just like a toy. It wasn't like, right. it was like, ooh, the rubber band makes the rotor whirl. It was like one foot long. And Will and Orv were just playing with that thing till they broke, and then wow. they built their own. Wow, wow. Yeah, Chills. so in later years, they both pointed to this as like, whoa, we're interested in flying. <laughs> this <laughs> like single ever... thing is it. Everything else is about this. Ever since we had that weird toy airplane from France, we loved it. I mean, I think like a subtle theme of this episode is going to be like the fixation on this stuff totally. is required to do it. Like you have to be singularly obsessed with airplanes if you're going to be good at it. And if not, like if it's just like a casual thing, don't do it. Like I don't want to get in the plane well, with you. Well, I think what's really interesting about the Wright brothers versus like the space race and the Apollo missions is that there was like very overt business gains yeah. in flight and in flying. Like there were a lot of other people concentrically being like, holy shit, if we could move like cargo in the sky, <laughs> it would be extremely lucrative. Or like if we could sell this and license right. this to an army and like move troops this way conduct battles this way like that would be super lucrative so were they weird physics nerds to be sure but they immediately knew like they like monetize i'm not it. even i'm not going to go into it a ton but yeah they were very focused on monetizing it right from the get-go and they were super into like patenting it like reaching out to like allied for like this was obviously pre-world war one but it was like yeah we'll talk to like france and england and the u.s army about what to do with this we don't really trust anybody else um so anyway, they both go to high school, but they just move around so much that they end up just like not really finishing high school, but they were um, super good students, obviously. Um, in 1886, Wilbur was struck in the face by a hockey stick wow. while playing an ice skating game, resulting in the loss of his front teeth, never oh. replaced. So Wait, what? he'd been Yeah, he'd been super big. I mean, they didn't have the technology back then. So he okay, just was but toothless? I will, I will say that nowhere does it say you never had them replaced. I'm just always going to think of him as not having two front teeth. Okay, so that's not a fact. That's just a colorful <laughs> embellishment. A fact, but... <laughs> but from here on out, I'm also now going to picture this man flying a plane. Okay, yeah, I mean, it's important. <laughs> so, so prior to this accident, Wilbur had been, like, super athletic, outgoing, like, was planning on playing, like, 
playing sports at Yale. Um, and then he spends the next three years, like basically housebound really brings about a change in his personality becomes very moribund. And he's at the same time caring for his mother who was terminally ill with tuberculosis. Wow. Um, and so he's basically just taking care of his mom, reading his dad's library, um, which is mostly religious stuff, but obviously he's like a man of letters. So there's other stuff too that gets him interesting. Um, and so Orville drops out of high school after his junior year, but also it's more like the family moved and he's just like, ah, I'm done with school. I'm going to start my own printing business and um, de- designed a printing press with Wilbur's help. That was like the first thing they designed together. Um, Wilbur ends up joining the print shop and in March they launch a weekly newspaper um, called West Side News. And they're kind of thriving, like considering how young they were, like literally running a newspaper at the age of like 17. What? I know. Like they were real entrepreneurs. It was my big takeaway that I wouldn't have expected was like they were just like constantly hustling. Hustling. Yeah. Hustling. Um, so after like this, the weekly newspaper, it kind of gets bought out. Um, and then they just use their, they use their printing press to focus on commercial printing. But Anyway, so then, so they have this whole little printing business, and then they're like, you know, it's sweeping the nation at a wild rate. Guess. Uh, planes? Toy planes? I don't know. <laughs> Not toy planes. Bicycles. Oh, Like, course. apparently, bicycles, people were losing their minds for, you know, a penny farthing. Wow. <laughs> like, a, like, all different types of shapes of bicycles, because they'd kind of just been invented and put into the mainstream, and, like, also able to be like mass produced for the first time with holy like holy shit you know, I, I feel like i know where you're going with this like bicycles like that's, where do you think i'm going for well this? that's like you know you have to roll something along to get it to fly first like is that like the well, landing gear is based on a bicycle um Maybe. i think they're all pretty related <laughs> Like I think all mecha- me- like I think all machines are like okay we figured out how to like stop something using this brake like how can we apply this, but so anyway they open up a a repair and sales shop for bicycles like they shutter their printing business they're like no way bicycles are like all the rage let's do it, um, and then they use the proceeds to like fund their growing interest in flight, um, and. There's a lot of, like, you know, just nerdy guys writing each other letters at this time being like, oh, man, like, we're tr- they're trying to make gliders in Germany. They're trying to make, you know, motors in the sky everywhere. Um, and there's this guy, Otto Lilienthal, in Germany. Um, and in 1896, there's a lot going on in flight. Like, there's a guy in Chicago that's trying to test gliders. There's people, like, using sand dunes in, like, Michigan. Um, and then Lilenthal, the German guy, is killed in a plunge in a in a glider. Oh no! Um, and this really lodged in the minds of the boys, the brothers, because they were like, "This, this, his death." They cited it as the point when their serious interest in flight research began. I don't know why. Maybe they had death wishes. It's really not. Yeah, that's clear. super dark. They're like, "We got to get more into this." Well, once they got really famous, they were like, "The like we owe it to Lilienthal. Like he is our greatest per." Like, our greatest precursor, we owe him a great debt, like, the whole world does, etc. So they, like, always were shouting him out. And they were like, <laughs> this is so pretentious. They're like, yeah, no, we started drawing on the work of Sir George Cayley, 
Leonardo da Vinci. Oh, God. <laughs> Lilienthal. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe Leonardo da Vinci's drawings are that good, but they basically beca- begin mechanical aeronautical experimentation that year in 1896. Um, and they always, and then this is important because we're about to get into some stuff that's not that interesting and I'm just going to glaze over it, but they always, as brothers, like wanted to present a unified image to the public and share equally in the credit for, like, everything that they did, like, the printing press, the bicycles, and then, of course, their greatest accomplishment, the airplane. Um, so they write, like, in the in 1899 to 1900, they write My Machines, and Wilbur was writing My Machines and My Plans before Orville was super involved, and then they went back in and changed them to, like, our plans, what we did. So... Someone that wrote about them said, it is impossible to imagine Orville, bright as he was, supplying the driving force that started their work and kept it going from the back of a storeroom in Ohio to conferences with capitalist presidents and kings. Will did that. He was the leader from beginning to end. Wow. So just want to point out that Will is, of course, the Aries. He's he's the leader. Um, so, like, Leo's love to be the center of tension, but... Aries are, like, the first sign. They're the signs of initiation. They're, like, a huge entrepreneurship sign, a huge sign for, like, blazing your own path. So it definitely makes sense to me that, like, he kind of wanted to be the le- the one that was, like, spreading their vision, whereas the other one was just kind of, like, I want to enjoy the fruits of this labor and work really hard. Um, but the- but they're to be fair, they're both... They're both leadership signs. Like, I think that what they did, not just creating these businesses, but, like, the way that they licensed it and the way that they were able to, like, replicate this on such a large scale and so quickly, it, like, really speaks to what great leaders they were. That's amazing. Um, So, anyway, now we're getting into some, like, very, very boring stuff. Like, literally, like, gliders. There's a whole section of Wikipedia that's, like, gliders. And there's some kooky photos. And it's, like... Photography was brand new, so it's like silhouettes of people just gliding through the sky. And I don't know. I mean, I think there's definitely an audience to figure out, like, like it. I mean, I guess it's probably pretty cool if you're into like physics and like planes, but I'm not into either, so whatever. Um, so we're bopping along, bopping along. <laughs> we're passing through all of this stuff until 1902. They start adding power to the equation because they're getting so good at gliding. So they're designing um, thrust, you know, power to weight ratio, propeller stuff. Again, these are just buzzwords that mean absolutely nothing to me. Yeah, I'm dissociating. I I cannot stress this enough, so I'm just really trying to, you know, glaze over the boring stuff for you. But so anyway, we come to their first powered flight, which is the really famous one. Um, And this is at... This is on the Outer Bank, so this is, like, right on the beach where they take off, and apparently the reason and most of the aeronautical experimentation that was happening at this time was happening around sand and stuff like that because it just breaks or fall more, so it's a lot less lethal. So anyway, they're doing tests and tests. They're like, can we do it? Finally, um, after they replace everything, the plane's ready to go, the right flyer. Wilbur won a coin toss between the two of them and made a three-second attempt on December 14th, but it stalls after takeout. It stalls after takeoff. The plane gets kind of messed up, whatever, whatever. Again, whatever. Finally, <laughs> December 17th, the rights take to the air together on December 17th, 1903, making two flights each from the level ground into freezing headwind gusting 27 miles per hour. Why did they choose that day? I think that they were like just, they. it was just like they had to fix the plane a lot. It was like they would try, it would crash, they would fix the plane, try again, 
crash again. So, yeah. So I think that they were just like, okay, like, who cares what the weather is? Anyway. Wow. Uh, um, so the first flight by Orville at 10.35 a.m., um, so it's, it can only be operated one at a time. So technically it's Orv that is doing this wow. first, but it's, it's Wilbur that has the vision. So it was 12 seconds at a speed of only 6.8 miles an hour over the ground, oh, which no, to be no. frank, I, I run faster than that. Like that is crazy. <laughs> we are giving them a lot of brouhaha. No, I mean, obviously it's like, good for you. Live your truth. We innovated beyond this so quickly and we're able to commercialize this so quickly. It's so impressive, but it does, it's very humbling to like look at these pictures of their gliders and of the first flight and be like, no, it was literally 12 seconds long. They were going, they were going like a nine minute mile. So the speed at this point is determined by how fast these guys can run. This is not like how slow the no, 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 but it's, it's motorized. There's a motor. Okay. That's so what makes like, this flight. That's wild. Deal. It doesn't, again, I don't have the faintest yeah. idea about how airplanes stay up in any sense, but it seems to me like you need a little bit more speed than that to get it off the ground. No. I, yeah, I don't know. Confusing. And, and <laughs> again, there's, there's no video. There's only like that really famous first flight photo, yep. um, which this one, there were five people that witnessed the flights. Um, one of them was like positioning Orville's camera for him. Um, and then there's like a couple of like government coastal life-saving people being like, who are these crazy kooks and why do they keep trying to crash into the ground? Um, fair, fair question. After they haul the flyer back from the fourth flight, a powerful gust of wind flips it over several times, despite everybody, the crew's attempt to hold it down and sadly severely damaged the right flyer never flew again after that day. Wow. I know. So they shipped the airplane home and later they restored it. And like now it's displayed in a bunch of different places. It's, it's at the Smithsonian right now. Um, so it only in the flew once? Space Museum. Well, it flew four times in one day, but yeah, just one day. Wow. That's such a... One day like motorized flight, like what we consider the first flight. Crazy. Um, so the first thing they did was be like, oh, like send, they send a telegram to their father and they're like inform the press. And the Dane Journal refuses to publish the story, saying that the flights were too short to be important. (laughs) (laughs) Devastating. I know. And so anyway, against them, like a telegraph, someone leaks it to the press and writes a highly inaccurate news article, like really exaggerating it. And they had to correct it and be like, it was actually only 12 seconds, but like, we're still pretty stoked. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So it was really sad. Um, But anyway, so it didn't really create this big public excitement. even if people knew about it, like at the time, like the news faded pretty quickly. This was like a one or two day blip in the news cycle. So and this like is not more of even... like a retroactively famous thing. It was not like yes. a big deal. Yes. Interesting. So then this is where things start to get boring again, really zoned out when I was reading this. <laughs> then they spend a lot of time, quote unquote, establishing legitimacy. They build new planes, they get new people involved, like they're getting other engineers to help them etc etc um and you know Dayton the people that wouldn't even you know wouldn't even run this story when they wrote home to their dad from North Carolina there's now so much like rah-rah about them and they're and like they're like they're national heroes but it's crazy because the newspaper men and the public in those days were like we don't really believe it but now Dayton has retroactively like claimed the Wright brothers as their own, even though they spent a lot of like this took place in North Carolina and they kind of grew up bopping around all over. Wow. Um, that's pretty But bold. another thing that's important is that um, so they were visited by a bunch of Europeans and people that were like interested in this. Um, 
and they went to aeronautical exhibits um, and stuff, but they were kind of like intentionally not drawing a ton of attention to this huge breakthrough they had because they were afraid of competitors stealing their ideas and they still didn't have a patent. Wow. Um, so yeah, they were just like savage businessmen also ultimately. So they write to the US government, um, Britain, France, and Germany, and they offer, they're like, oh, we have a flying machine. Um, and then they were rebuffed because they insisted on a signed contract before giving a demonstration. Like, these are, like, shrewd-ass men in Kitty Hawk, New Jersey. Like, how wild is that? So, anyway, the U.S. government is spending a lot of time on aerospace, and they're just like, no, we're not interested, whatever. Um, You know, blah, blah, blah. They get some contracts. (laughs) They get some European contracts and finally contracts from the U.S. Army to expand their research and make more stuff happen. (laughs) This is just a side note, not super interesting, their first public showing, but they did a, they go to France to do a public showing, and some newspapers were calling them bluffers. Oh. <laughs> For bluffers. Yeah, got it. <laughs> but this is, this is used like three or four times in the article being like, I ain't no bluffers. <laughs> so... Anyway, so they made uh, it. So even though their flights weren't that long, the general public was still like blown away because they were able to like turn and stuff. Like they had a lot of autonomy on the plane, I guess. I don't know. Again, not that big of a, like not that interesting. But the French public like really is loving this way more than Americans were when they found out about it. Anyway, so there's some. There's some bad stuff that happens. The, sure. the model flyer. <laughs> we we don't have to we don't have to go into it. But like one of their friends that was working on it gets hospi- hospitalized for seven weeks, um, and they almost lose their army contract. They don't. Um, this is President Taft at this point. Um, so in 1909, as things are really taking off, they start getting a lot of awards bestowed upon them. President Taft and his um, cabinet are investing in it like for the army and are also helping are also helping them do more like displays to like spread the word about flights so then there's also a patent war and i think if there's anything less interested in the mechanics of how a plane takes off it's a patent war about how planes take off like i i'm just not i didn't even i'll be honest with you, i didn't really read it we got we la 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 and then we get to <laughs> victory and cooperation so they win the patent war i guess yeah and these lawsuits kind of damaged the public in image of the Wright brothers because they were considered heroes and it kind of made them seem like super greedy and like they just wanted money. But it's like, make that paper. This is America. Like if you in- innovated something, you should get money. Um, so anyway, so they incorporate the Wright company in 1909. Um, they sell their patents to the company um, and are, you know, just hustling doing lots of con- con- doing lots of contracts um, mostly with the army but they're also like starting a flying school like this is just like a cash machine um, they're like this is way better than our bicycle situation so anyway there's some drama with the Smithsonian won't go into it but ultimately the Smithsonian accepts their the kitty uh, the right flyer into it you can go see it in the air and space museum i have been there it is underwhelming <laughs> it's not underwhelming but just to give you it's a little mean but just to give you guys an idea of like the actual physical plane um it had a wingspan of about 40 feet its top speed was 30 miles an hour um and it was only about 604 pounds so it's it it's smaller yeah it's a lot more petite than you would picture 
like because those pictures look so different um but anyway so personal life they are lifelong bachelors we don't know what's going on but wilbur once quipped he did not have time for both a wife and an aeroplane which i loved which is what i'm going to say the next time someone asks me why i'm not married wow um, i know i just don't have time for a husband and an airplane <laughs> Um, I mean, is there any anyway, suspicion around their sexuality? Like, um, I think that they were just kind of like fuckboys, honestly. Like, it oh. just seems like they were probably like they were kind of famous. Like, I was picturing more like asexual science boy. I was picturing more like asexual, like incest vibes, just because oh, they were both oh, like dark. so close. So glad you yeah, went that's there. A, that's that's a little, it's a little too dark for me to say based on literally nothing except vibes. Um, but it is pretty much <laughs> how it goes down. They get rich, they get famous, and they do not get married. Um, We're going to get sued by the right estate. Yeah. Um, so the really sad thing is that Orville, or sorry, Wilbur, they're like building their dream house, their dream like their dream place to live together. Yeah, they wanted to live together. I'll say it. Um, but but anyway. <laughs> um, so Wilbur doesn't live to see the completion of their dream brother oh. home because he um, gets ill on a business trip in 1912. And at first he's like, oh, I just had some bad shellfish at a banquet. No. And then he falls ill again, diagnosed with typhoid. No. And he just like lingers on for a while. That's happens um, with the typhoid. Exactly. But anyway, he ultimately dies like a month later at the age of 45, which oh, is really sad. So um, young. His father wrote about Wilbur in his diary, a short life full of consequences, an unfailing intellect, imperturbable temper, great self-reliance and great modesty, seeing the right clearly, pursuing it steadfastly. Wow. He lived and died. Wow. Did he spell right <laughs> with a W? No, but I would have loved that. I love I love to see wordplay in my 19th century journal. Same. So glad we're <laughs> but, on the same page um, with that. But yeah, but so as I mentioned before, Wilbur was like kind of like the business mind. Um, I mean, they were, they were both business minds, but he was like the super aggressive one about like expanding their vision. Um, so after Wilbur dies, Orville takes over, obviously. He, they, he takes on... Um, he, he moves into that house that they built um, and a himself. couple of their... A few of their siblings move in and their father. Um, and then Milton dies in his sleep at the age of 88. Wow. Sadly. Wow. Like he outlives his brother by so much. And yeah, he made one last flight as a pilot in 1918. And literally in just those 15 years between his first flight and his last flight, like it was just night and day. Like this is 1918 when his company was like gearing up to like armor all of Europe and all the allies for World War One, which is wild. That is so wild. I know. I mean, I think that's like a, another big overarching takeaway of this episode is that this all happened in such a compressed period of time. Like exactly. Well, this definitely mentions that Orville dies in literally 1948. So that's crazy. he was. He lived from the horse and buggy age to the dawn of supersonic flight. Like, when he died, they were already breaking the sound barrier, um, which is crazy. And you guys should all read the right stuff. That's just a side recommendation. I just love the right stuff. But basically, that's what you really need to know. But I do want to say, because I'm just interested how 
your how this is going to come into it. But with you, Rebecca, because Ohio and North Carolina both take credits for the Wright brothers and their inventions. <laughs> Ohio, because they developed and built their designs in Dayton, and North Carolina, because Kitty Hawk was where it actually went down. And if you look at their, like, state coins, <laughs> like, North Carolina's is, like, first in flight, and it's, like, yeah. a picture of the Wright Flyer and stuff. And then Ohio is, like, birthplace of aviation pioneers, and it has the Wright Flyer and a spaceman on Drama. it. Drama. And it's like, okay. Because John Glenn and Neil Armstrong were both born in Ohio. So there's been a lot of, like, there's bad blood between the states of North Carolina and Ohio over this, apparently. Wow. So, yeah, that's all I really have. That's all the non-boring information I found out. I mean, that was a lot. You made it seem like you had no research at all, and you really just took us on a voyage. Okay, well, I'm, I'm glad you feel that way. It was a Wikipedia-driven voyage, but a voyage nonetheless. And I'm just, I'm just glad I found out that it's almost scarier to me how recent all of this is. Like, how short of a time period is, like, not something you think about, but, like, I'm very afraid of flying, so... I don't love thinking about the fact that it's like, yeah, no, like 110 years ago, they could only keep this shit above ground for 12 seconds. Yeah, I don't like it when you put it like that. I also really, I mean, the other thing, this is not about flying or anything really, but I don't trust tunnels oh, at all. <laughs> who does? Like, that's been going on for like, that's been going on for like 50 years. Like, when did, how do tunnels work? How do they build them? How do we collectively under- become okay with them? They became underwater so tunnels. normalized. Like, underwater tunnels. Like, I'm so sorry. I didn't consent to that. And now you're just on a highway and suddenly you're underneath the Chesapeake Bay. Now it's literally your only way. Totally agree with you. you. Know exactly what terrifying tunnel you're talking about. Hate it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's, that's all I got for you guys. Um, and... Please reach out if you have any questions about anything I didn't cover because I can guarantee you I'm not interested in it. But I would I would welcome your information about it. I just yeah, I just couldn't I just couldn't get it together to read about the gliding. Well or the patents. You're in good company because I couldn't bother to learn about any of the rocket ship stuff. So, you know, this is again not a podcast for technicalities. This is a podcast about Americans doing things and the things that caused them mm-hmm. to do it, some of which are astrologically ordained. We don't make the rules. We're blazing our own trail. We're pioneers. We 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 ventured to ask, what if we had a history podcast but didn't really do that much research for it? I mean, I don't have time for a man and an aircraft. <laughs> I don't have time. Yeah, I just I couldn't simply do both. Okay, so we've heard about the first flight. Now we're going to talk about the moon and the lunar landing. And basically the first thing that I think that anyone really needs to know when discussing this is that the moon is haunted. This is a theory that I have seen in practice. I've read it in literature. It just seems to me like an indisputable fact that the moon has this pull. She's a siren. She attracts powerful men. And people just can't quit her. The second thing that you really need to know is that like the lunar landing is pretty much all because of jfk like he did it all his energy is the reason why we put a man on the moon so let's get into it yes okay tell me i already know but tell me (laughs) yeah actually i was gonna ask you before i get into it like how much do you already know about like because i really didn't know that much like i know i don't know the nitty-gritty at all but i just know that like that was just randomly his legacy was like by the end of the decade we're going to be on the moon and everybody was like we are processing grief yeah. for having our leader slain in front of us so we're by gonna channeling 
hundreds of millions of dollars into the space program. That's that's um, it. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, I realized halfway through doing this that like one of my favorite episodes of The Crown is the one where they all watch the oh, lunar so landing good. and like Philip is freaking out. And before that, they've just like met JFK and Jackie for the first time, and like Philip and JFK bond over space and like the space race. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best episodes of The Crown. It's so good. And Philip is just like yeah. geeking out Love about it. And you know, you would too if you were watching a man step on the moon for the first time. It's cool. So basically JFK gets elected in November 1960. The following spring on April 12th, Russia basically like at this point won the space race. Like the moon wasn't on the table at this point. So at this point, like it's really just about like who's going to get a man into space successfully first. And Russia did it on April 12th. Yuri Gagarin um went off in a one-man spacecraft which just blows my mind that if you're gonna go hurdle yourself into space like you're also gonna do it solo and i know that's like probably to mitigate like if it goes bad it's only one death versus a bunch but still it seems like a very terrifying thing to do alone so so not to um interrupt you but i'm just and i if this was not part of your research no no please whatever i'm just curious like how many unmanned flights were there before they put people in? And, like, I know that Russians use dogs a lot. Yeah. We thought it was really messed up. Like, were we using animals at all? I'm pretty Monkeys? sure there was, like, chimps that maybe at some point. I don't know. Yeah. I think there's something about that. you remember that weird that. 90s yeah. movie about, like, a chimp in space? Okay, but maybe was that just, like, a Disney original movie and yeah, not a Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Let's – hold on. Yeah. Chimp in space. <laughs> Real life. Harambe. Oh, a brief history of chimps in space. Oh my god! Wait, <laughs> okay, quick, so there's quick oh wait, there's a, there's an entire Wikipedia page called "Monkeys and Apes in Space." So wow, when okay, did it so first start? I before you get into it, let's just shout out the four humans went into space in the 1960s. Several other animals were launched into space, including numerous other primates. Wow! So that scientists could imbe- investigate the biological effects of space flight. Um, oh my god, these pictures are so cute. Did it's all these little monkeys. Um, yeah, I think they're they're fine. But like I like that it's like really shouting out who they are. It's like, okay, Albert, Aresis Macaque, he died of suffocation. But <gasps> oh. pouring out for Albert. Albert was followed by Albert too, who survived a flight but died on impact. Wait, this oh. is so sad. Blair, what the Albert fuck? three. <laughs> this okay, is you're so right, you're dark. right. <laughs> Okay, you said it right. I know that you have this documented problem of like raising your voice in delight when something is truly dark, but like you getting yeah. excited reading these monkeys' names to be like, oh, he suffocated. Oh, he died on impact. Like it's just the darkest thing. Okay, you're thing right. I you're right. Conceive. I cannot laugh at this. No, no, you can't. It's all staying in. But like, Tough I'm going to use so this. Anyway... This is going to get played in court one day for like a custody hearing. <laughs> well, I'm just. This all goes to say that prior to when they were manning flights, they were testing it out by killing a bunch of monkeys okay. and chimps. Jesus. So it's worth saying. Well, thank you for bringing awareness saying. to this You're dark chapter I'm in awareness. history. I'm raising awareness to a little Wikipedia place called Monkeys and Apes in Space. I feel like we maybe got to do a follow-up ID talking about just that alone. But for now... I mean, it, it's unbelievably detailed about, like, their actual names and, like, their species. So I think that, like, if nothing else, they didn't give their lives in vain. Is this, like, trying to break my heart, though? Like, it's going to just anthropomorphize no, yeah, these no. monkeys? I mean, because then... some of the names are really cute. I'm not even going to tell you because these are too cute. Maybe you should put some of the best pics on Instagram just as in memoriam. (laughs) So dark. I will definitely be doing it in memoriam. Um, Okay, yes, go on. Okay, so basically Russia in uh, April 1961 
essentially wins the space race for the time being by putting a man in a Vostok spaceship, goes around Earth. His name's Yuri Gagarin, Gagarin, and he was born March 9th, which is that a Pisces? Yes, I'm getting so good at this. You really are. Um, Pisces, nothing to write home about, and I also feel like he was not the brains of that operation anyway, so, like, maybe let's not give too much credit to the astronauts. No, but he was the first man to do it, so I feel like I gotta just give him a little bit of a shout-out, but that makes sense that he was just sort of, like, a beta Pisces and, like, wasn't really doing much. Yeah, totally. That tracks. Okay, so days after this, on April 20, Kennedy is like, you know what, this is not sitting well on my soul personally that the Russians have achieved this. So he sends a little memo over to VP LBJ and he's like, can you just like do me a little favor and like start looking into the status of like what's going on with the space program and what can we do to basically catch NASA up in the space race? And LBJ comes back a week later and was basically like, we're not really even making like an effort here and we're certainly not achieving the results um, that we need if we're going to like be a contender in the space race. LBJ's memo concludes saying that like not to worry, putting a crew on the moon, which is like the higher goal of the space race is so far off in the future that the U S is probably going to be the one to achieve it first. And this kind of just like puts a bug in JFK's ear. Like LBJ's like, don't worry, we're going to get to us eventually. But like, this is certainly not something we're prepared to do now. And because Russia's already been the one to get a man in space first, it's just like not sitting well on JFK's soul that they're just going to like wait and see on this. So he starts basically in his mind prioritizing this as a thing. Now, a few days later, on April 5th, Alan B. Shepard um, became the first American in space in a suborbital flight in a Mercury capsule, which was called Freedom 7. Um, mm-hmm. But Kennedy just can't get the moon out of his head. The moon is a siren. She's a haunting <laughs> woman. And Kennedy just can't let it go that, like, yeah, okay, we got a man in space, but, like, fuck LBJ. Like, why can't we put a okay, man on the moon? Okay, not to derail you, but have you seen... Um... Have you seen the episode of 30 Rock where Buzz Aldrin is, is meets Liz and he's like, there she, he's like, I, we, we fight. He's like, do you want to yell at the moon with Buzz Aldrin? She's like, yeah, I do. I've not okay, seen feel, it, but feel I free do, to cut that out. It's, it's I do love 30 important. Rock. So what a great co-endorsement. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're in May. We're just days away from JFK's 44th birthday. He's probably got a lot of feelings on his mind. You're over the hill at that point. You're feeling your male mortality. So he's like, you know what? I want to go to the moon. This is what I want with my presidency, and I'm just not letting go of it. So he goes up in front of Congress, gives this big speech, basically saying, like, it's time for a new great American enterprise. It's time for this nation to take a clearly leading role in space achievement. And he's like, basically, the only way we're going to do this is by landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. There's no single space project in this period that's going to be more impressive to mankind and more difficult to accomplish, and we need to be the ones to do it. And Congress is kind of like, all right, like, that's a lot. Like, you're maybe going through something. Like, we get it. The moon's cool. But, like, maybe we don't, like, spend trillions of dollars trying to get people on the moon. We'll wait and see. Um, And... You know what? He, like, goes public with this, and the American people love it. We hate the Russians. We hate that the Russians have basically won the space race. The Cold War is a Bruin. And, you know, our sexy young president wants to claim the moon for America, and we get behind that. We're like, yes, Kennedy. Yes. You do it. Yes, we are. Let's go. So 
they start basically the Apollo program, which is a revamp of the Mercury program, which was started under Eisenhower in 1960. Um, the Mercury capsules would only support one astronaut, where the Apollos would hold three. So this is like a step up in scale and in power, and that's the main craft we're going after for the Apollo program or Project Apollo. Um, 1962, JFK doubles down on his commitment to go to space. He gives this public uh, speech at Rice University, which was now become super famous. It begins, but why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? We chose to go to the moon. We, cho we choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard, because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that are, we are willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one that we intend to win. Like, okay. I have chills up and down my body. Like, I'm loving it. Let's go. So you hear this, you're a student at Rice University and your sexy president is like, we're going to win the space race and put a motherfucking man on the moon and you're behind it. Um, well, let's, okay. But I, I do just want to quickly touch on like, why? <laughs> like, like, I am like, yeah, I get it. It's hard. It's going to take a lot of resources. It's going to take us somewhere we've never been before. But, like, is the reasoning truly, like, we just got to get there before the Russians so they feel like we could nuke them from no. the moon? I think it is JFK wanting to fuck the moon. Like, he wants to be... <laughs> the, listen, the moon is elusive. She's up there in the sky. She's taunting it's us. so true. We're curious. I mean... Hard to guess. I have had many uncanny encounters with the moon, so I'm a little bit of, like, a, not a lunar landing conspiracy theorist, which we'll get to. A bit of a moon head. I'm a moon conspiracist. Like, I'm not sure the moon is, like, okay. I've seen it one time, and there are people that saw this with me, so I, like, you can have... I think we talked we about have this talked in the about pod this. Like, we talked about... I specifically talked about the portal in Jamestown, which I'll defend to my last breath, but I think I might have also mentioned the time I watched the moon basically be pulled out of the sky like a set prop in the Truman Show, and I didn't love it. It didn't set well on my soul. So I really think that, like, yes... The Cold War was a Bruin. Yes, the Russians had put a man in space, but I don't think that was it at all. I think it was that JFK looked up at the moon and was like, that's my latest conquest. That's what I want. I think I hate to go back to it, but that episode of The Crown, like, it's about these nerdy men wanting to claim it's the ultimate manifest destiny. Like, what's more manifest destiny than being the first person to fuck the moon? Okay, you're making a lot of really good points. I thought about I just, this a lot. I just do think you need to come clean to manifestors as a moon skeptic yeah, before I'm, you go okay, any further. Fair enough. You just do disclaimer. need to disclaim that you yeah. don't 100% believe in the moon's existence. Yeah, agree. But, like, doing this research did make me kind of believe in it more we'll get to it but like <laughs> i still have well, a lot at of least questions. this research served one purpose yeah it served something so while jfk is like fantasizing about getting a man on the moon the actual scientists responsible for this were like what the fuck like we're not prepared <laughs> for this like we don't have the infrastructure for this and the first big challenge was that the existing launch site launch operations center on cape Canaveral wasn't big enough to launch a saturn V rocket which was the again we're not getting into the specifics there's some sort of rocket propulsion thing that America was able to invent before the Russians in large part because of the full Nazis that we imported after the war. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, feel free to go back and listen to our episode on Operation Paperclip. <laughs> we get into yes. it. But we were so desperate to like get the science there that we hired a bunch of Nazis, gave them new identities, super dark. Um, and we basically build whatever thing one needed to 
have enough power to get a three-man rocket, the Saturn V, to the moon, allegedly. But Cape Canaveral wasn't big enough, so they have to build a whole new launch operations center a little bit down the road on Merritt Island. Um, meanwhile, all the NASA scientists are doubting JFK's ambitions. They're like, not only do we have to figure out how to physically get something to the moon, we have to develop a spaceship powerful enough to go there and back. Again, not trying to get into all these logistical details. I simply don't understand mm-hmm. how airplanes stay up, let alone a spaceship. Um, but basically, facing all this pressure from the naysayers in 1963, early 1963, JFK almost caved and collaborated with the Russians to put a man on the moon. Like, they had, like, what? back and forth about, like, it's stupid for us to be wasting our respective resources separately when we could combine our intellect and do this together. This was like a thing, and I didn't really read too much. So this could have like ended the Cold War. Like could have, but JFK's like, you know what? No, <laughs> I want the moon for America, and I will not be stopped. And we're and we're grateful that he did. We have no we have no choice but to stand. I mean, yeah. So this was early 1963, and we all know what happened in November 1963. JFK was stopped from his quest for the moon <sighs> when he was killed. Um, and in one of the first things LBJ did after becoming president was to sign, this was literally like seven days after JFK's assassination, LBJ signed an executive order renaming the new launch operations center on Merritt Island, the John F. Kennedy Space Center, which is now more widely known as the Kennedy Space Center, where most of the big shit goes down. Again, I don't know the details about any of this other Love than that. that's just a really... Mm-hmm. Sad fact here, but I do think that Kennedy's assassination really was like the rallying cry for people to stop being like, JFK's out of his gourd, why are we doing this? To being like, we're doing this for Johnny. Like, Johnny wanted to go to space, we're going to do that for him and for all of America. So everybody gets to work, it takes five years, it's not until 1966 that NASA is able to basically be able to test the structural integrity of this rocket that they're going to need to get someone on the moon. So the first Apollo 1, they launched in 1967. Um, unfortunately, a fire broke out on the launch pad, and it destroyed the aircraft and killed three astronauts, so very dark. Um, but they did forge ahead, even in the wake of that first setback. Um, and in October 1968, Apollo 7 was the first manned Apollo mission to orbit Earth um, and tested out, again, all these crazy features necessary to preserve your soft human meat puppet flesh while hurtling through the space-time continuum. Um, sure. So they tested all that before, obviously, attempting to land on the moon. Then the same year, December 1968, they get three astronauts to go to the far side of the moon and back. So they're like really testing the distance here. And then in March 1969, Apollo 9 tests the first like lunar module in Earth's orbit. And finally, in May 1969, um, Apollo 10 took the first complete Apollo spacecraft around the moon on basically what would be a dry run of the landing mission. So they basically did everything except actually land on the moon, making sure they had everything down pat, they weren't going to run out of oxygen, things weren't going to go wrong on the dark side of the moon. They got it all squared away. So on July 16th, 1969, that was the scheduled launch for the first manned mission to the moon. The commander was Neil Armstrong, who was born on August 5th, so a Leo. Mm-hmm. Sean, you know he, you know You it. know it. You, you know, I... You know he wants to capitalize on the work of a bunch of nerds yep. and go down in history. Yep. And... As Armstrong, strong man. Yep. You know. And the word that, like, most commonly came up when people were describing him was aloof, which really does feel like his type of Leo. Just, like, 
mm-hmm. I'm here for the power, not for your camaraderie. It's a me show. And, you know, for a long time, like, Armstrong was absolutely ubiquitous, like, the, with the Mooner Lander. And, like, Buzz Aldrin, his PR people didn't kick into gear until much later. Um, Definitely. He was the hero. So the command module pilot was Michael Collins. He is born October 31st. So Scorpio? Yes. Wow. Scorpio and also born on All Hallows' Eve. So super... Yeah. Even spookier. Yeah, he's a spooky man. He's got a haunting image. His defining tenet was he's a loner. Um, That really does define (laughs) him. We'll get into it. But Michael Collins doesn't seem like he's exactly well. Um, And then there's lunar module pilot Edwin Buzz Aldrin Jr., who's born January 20th. So an Aquarius or a Capricorn? I never know. January 20th? Day after me. Day after you, I'd say I'm putting you in Aquarius territory. Yeah. Okay. So he's an Aquarius. Um, his defining tenet is he's described as, as difficult to work with, and he was almost replaced. Um, but then at the last minute, they're like, he's not that bad. Uh, apparently, Buzz was also the only one who was like really trying to foster some camaraderie between them. Like Collins recalls that like Buzz was trying to befriend him, and Collins was just like, I'm a loner, and I was born on Halloween, so just please leave me alone. <laughs> So their working relationship. Love this dynamic. Thank you for painting such a great picture. It's borderline toxic. It's like three people that like don't really get along, don't really know each other. Their just relationship was described by somebody as amiable strangers, which really doesn't feel like the secret sauce for putting three men in a rocket <laughs> and launching them on the moon. But, you know, that's what happened. 1969. It was a crazy okay. time. It was a crazy time. Um, so... Loner Michael Collins was actually the one who designed the lunar mission insignia. Um, They wanted something that was like, we're going to represent a peaceful lunar landing by the U.S. So they landed on an eagle carrying an olive branch in its mouth, its beak, rather, to convey to the moon that we come in peace. Just in case, you know, the moon is sentient or has aliens on it. Like, we're coming in peace. We've got an eagle, a very fearsome looking eagle, mind you, with an olive branch in its mouth. So... That's not that surprising. Um, (laughs) The flight was watched by an estimated 1 million spectators on the ground. Like, they were in the highways and the beaches and, like, congregating in the launch site. So it would have been bad if it went wrong, which, you know, shout out to our episode on the Challenger. R.I.P. Oh, God. So dark. R.I.P. VIP attendees included chief of staff of the Army, four cabinet members, 19 governors, 40 mayors, big faction of mayors. 60 ambassadors, 200 congressmen. There were over uh, 3,500 media representatives present. So just like a big presence. This is a big deal. This is not like the Wright Brothers' first flight where nobody really could give a shit, except for like maybe Dayton sometimes. Like these guys were out in droves. And at 1.32, the Saturn V launched Apollo 11 successfully, and it off it went into orbit, everyone cheering. It went on to travel over 200,000 miles in 76 hours. Again, this is where it gets boring. I start losing interest. Uh, It enters into lunar orbit on July 19th, so a few days later. Um, And then the next day, on July 20th, the lunar module, which was called the Eagle because they really went with a theme and they stuck to it, (laughs) And the Eagle was manned by Armstrong and Aldrin, and poor Collins had to stay back with the ship. And... Collins, like, later, like, wrote a whole autobiography where he, like, goes out and claims, like, no, I, like, never felt lonely when the other two guys were, like, walking on the moon and I had to, like, sit with the ship. And uh, (laughs) 
And then he like backed it up in his biography. He's like, well, also, and this is a direct quote, not since Adam has any man known such solitude. Like that's how he described his time in space. So, like maybe he did actually feel a little bit butthurt from that. Um, oh, sad. So I feel a little bad for Collins, but also like he creeps me out. So <laughs> Collins stayed behind. The other two go off. The eagle begins his descent to the lunar surface around 417, touches down on the southwestern southwestern edge of something called the Sea of Tranquility, which again, like, oh yeah, what is going no, on I, on the moon? Well, guess what? The well, first of all, you can name it anything you want, and we're going Sea of Tranquility, and this is just a side plug. Author of Station Eleven and The Glass Hotel, Emily St. Mangel. St. John Mandel, she just came out with a new book called Sea of Tranquility about colonies on the moon. Wait, I did not know that. Yeah, no, it came out like two weeks ago. I haven't started it yet, but it's on my nightstand right now. Wow. I'm looking at it. I'm, I'm very excited. I'll keep you posted. I'm trying to finish Disorientation right now, which is weirdly taking me forever, even though it's pretty good. Wow, I was so, literally going to endorse Station Eleven and talk about if you want some like weird space. It's, yeah, no. Well, if you want even weirder, even more space stuff, definitely read Sea of Tranquility. Is this a Manifest Destiny book club pick? Like, I'm literally going to send you a picture of it right now. It's literally a, the surface. Wow, of I like want to wrap up and download it. Like, <laughs> this is very exciting. Well, I haven't started it yet. Wow, wow. But yeah, very exciting. On. Okay, so basically, yeah, they land on the Sea of Tranquility, which is now a book by Emily St. John Mandel. And that's when Armstrong sends his iconic mission control message The Eagle has landed. Um, <laughs> at 10 39 p.m so you know nighttime but it's the moon so who knows what's going on up there uh armstrong exits the lunar module and descends the ladder and there's a televised camera attached to the side of the spacecraft that's recording him and transmitting the video to earth where hundreds of millions of people watched it's more than that because i've read that it was estimated that 20 percent of the world's population watched man's first steps on the moon well, I do have to say, not that I'm a conspiracy theorist, like, I do think that all of this happened, but... Oh, God. It's, I mean, it just seems absolutely wild to me that there was, like, basically live streaming from the moon in the year 1969. I mean, So, like, yes, shout out to... But it's, like, crude satellite Satellites, technology. I guess? It's, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Not a doctor. Just just saying it's a little fishy. No, it's, it's transmitting a signal. Listen, we're going to get to it, the conspiracies and why they're all nonsense, but... Yeah, I mean, I think it's just crazy that you, like, can't get a flight off the ground going more than six miles per hour, and then, you know, less than 100 years later, we're griping about, like, transmitting a satellite image from the moon to Earth. Like, wild. Wild, wild. So after uh, Armstrong steps off the ladder, he does the whole iconic, that's one step for, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. You all know it. You all love it. Just icon behavior. Aldrin joins him about 19 minutes later. They take some photographs. They plant the U.S. flag as a nice fuck you to Russia. They run a few scientific tests. They end up having a little chat with Nixon um, via Houston. Nixon's the president now. Um, And by 1 a.m., they're back in the lunar module and the hatch is closed. And get this. I didn't know this. They sleep on the moon. They just go to bed on the moon. They're like, all right, that's fine. We're just going to take a little snooze on the surface of the moon. That, to me, is the craziest thing I've learned here. Like, the amount of, like, disoriented I would feel being, like, I'm the first person to step on another planet, and now I'm just going to I mean, you know camp? who has no trouble falling asleep anywhere? White men. I mean, they like, sleep literally, soundly. I was just talking to one of my friends being like, how wild is it that boys just close their close eyes? Close their eyes. 
<laughs> they, I literally, it, I sometimes will wake Stephen up just out of rage and the feeling of like oh, injustice totally. that he just simply closes his eyes and about two to three minutes later he is sound asleep. Can you imagine? It really, I, I actually cannot. I can't Like either. I have, and I would, I can literally date my insomnia to like the day I hit puberty. Yes. It's like as soon as you start having like wild crazy thoughts and yep. you need to go through like an anxiety list every single night like yep. that's that's where the sleep goes. i can't get asleep and then my sleep itself is not very restful because it's just like horrific dreams like i have like I know, conquered my dreams good. to such an extent like i have teeth falling dreams out all the time and oh last me night, too i oh my god i have all teeth the time out dreams it's all the routine time too. it's constant it's just like a background thing of dreams but <laughs> last night this is why i know therapy's working I had a conscious thought in my dream of being like this chunk of my teeth fell out. And in my mind, I was like, wow, I can continue to be stressed out about my teeth falling out and try and like stick them back in when no one's looking. Or I can use this as an opportunity to really thoroughly brush my teeth. Like I can just take them out and just like really clean them. And then they're going to wow, be. Somebody's doing CBT. Honestly, I was like, I feel like I should call my therapist. And I woke up this morning being like, it's not an emergency. Don't really worry. But I've had like a breakthrough. I wrote it all down and I've got therapy tomorrow. I can't wait for her to unpack it. But like what a breakthrough. Yeah, that is a huge break. I feel like I have such an ability as like kind of lucid yes. dreamer, like where I'm like, Okay, I'm not like loving this yep. plot line. Like, let's maybe walk down that alley yep. and see what's going on Absolutely. over there. Like, it's like I'm making all these decisions. Like, I'm in some sort of horrific sleep yes. video game. But it's like not restful. And it's another you wake crazy up and thing. You're it's tired. Like, it's like my boyfriend's always like, "Hey, let's watch the Batman before we go to sleep, and let's only watch the first half." And I'm just like, "Okay, so what I'm learning is that you have no, yeah, you're you're godless. You don't need a narrative arc to bind you to the planet Earth." You don't care about weird, ominous sounds. You don't care about Robert Pattinson wearing makeup. I just can't do it. Sorry. This is a very big tangent we can cut out. No, no. It's important. We're doing important work here. (laughs) We're doing God's work. It's just saying, if you're a woman, let's see this. Ask yourself if you could sleep unprotected in a small, modular spaceship on the surface of the moon. Yeah, that's the takeaway. And if your answer to that question was yes, you are a man. One, 10 out of 10, guarantee it. I mean, maybe you're our leader. Like, that's a higher evolution. But it's not me. I wouldn't be able to sleep. But, you know, that's what Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong did. They went to sleep. And then (laughs) they woke up. And they went back to the spaceship. And at 5.35 p.m., they re-successfully joined Collins. Collins was like, what up, guys? Like, I've been here alone on this spacecraft. Will you make history? And my brand is not doing as well. Um, But that's okay. (laughs) He made it home alive, which is all you can really ask. So on July 22nd, they began the journey home, and they safely splashed down in the Pacific Ocean at 12.50 on July 24th, successfully completing man's first voyage to the moon. So turns out, after that, moon landing, not such a hot topic. There were only five more successful lunar landing missions after the original one. And something called an unplanned lunar swing by, which I did not care to investigate. I was like, Wait, what? I could learn about Wait, this. Wait, what are you talking about? That's the most tantalizing title I've ever heard. Yeah, you know what? As someone afraid of space and flight, I was like, I could, or I could relive this in my dreams later. And I chose not to. I was like, I don't need to know what an okay. unplanned lunar swing by is at this juncture in my life. But if you want to go out and find out and report back, Go for it. I'd love to know. I think you and I both know I will not be doing that, but I encourage it. Yeah, I encourage. I wasn't speaking to you. I was speaking to the manifestors. Oh, I wouldn't okay. expect that to of the you. Manifestors. I know you far better than that. Um, okay. 
Yeah, so basically the last people to walk on the moon were two astronauts in 1972, Eugene Cernan and Harrison Schmidt of the Apollo 17. They were the last two. We haven't had somebody walk on the moon since the 70s. Crazy. I don't know why that surprised me as much as it did, but I just thought like maybe NASA was in the habit of just like checking in on the moon every once in a while. Exactly. I don't know why we started it and I certainly don't know why we stopped. I know why we stopped because it costs <laughs> so much money and time. It literally cost $24 billion, which is a close to a hundred billion dollars in today's dollars to do all of this. So like I get it in theory, but like maybe check what's going on up there every once in a while. Just send like one of the monkeys up, make sure it's all good. The moon's, you know, not beyond a reasonable it's level still of haunting. Moon. Uh, Another fun fact I learned is there's just like a repository of moon rocks somewhere in Las Cruces, New Mexico. So shout out to Las Cruces. Wow. If you ever find yourself there, go ask about the moon rocks. (laughs) Seems to be a thing. Um, (laughs) So yeah, as I said, it was very expensive. People simply didn't care about the moon once it was achieved. It was like, we have justified Kennedy's mandate to get on the moon. We've avenged him and we don't need to worry about it after this. Um, And it was also pretty much like at that point, America definitively won the space race. Like the Russians might have gotten a man in space first, but we got two men on the moon. That was the space race over. Yeah, we did. That's it. Shout out. Love that. Love that. Um, So yeah, and basically some people don't believe that the moon landing happened. There's a whole slew of lunar conspiracies they can kind of be tracked back to an original, like early influential book that was published in 1976, shortly after we stopped going to the moon. So maybe this is on us for not <laughs> continuing to check up. But it was called simply, We Never Went to the Moon, colon, America's $30 billion swindle. And it was self published. So that tells you everything you need to know by a guy named okay. Bill Casing. Um, and he was a former US Navy officer with a BA in English. Um, living for so, that. So, you know, you know he was messy. Anyone that gets a BA in English is looking <laughs> for some drama. Sure. Um, he had no knowledge of rockets or technical writing and was hired in 1956 by the company that built the F-1 engines used on the Saturn rocket. Again, means nothing to me. But he was kind of hired, as, you know, most English majors are, with no real credentials for this job and sure. just sort of, like, made it work. Um, we're all out here hustling. <laughs> and he served as the head of technical publications unit um, in their propulsion field laboratory until 1963 and then sometime after 1963 in 1976 he decides the moon's a conspiracy theory and publishes this book Um, and this basically starts the discussion of the moon landings being faked Um, the book made some claims that like a successful crude landing would have been calculated at 0.000.17% like I don't know where he got that figure no one's been able to back it up um just basically said a bunch of things like it would have been easier for NASA to fake the moon landing than actually go there. That's a very popular one. People like to be like, well, it would have been way easier to stage like a set and all of this stuff than actually put men on the moon. Sure. Uh, 1980s, the, I see the Flat Earth Society takes off. So they don't like the idea of the moon at all. Um, they start going on this whole thing <laughs> saying that it was a Hollywood production uh, sponsored by Walt Disney and that it was directed by Stanley Kubrick. They dragged poor Stanley Kubrick into this. And, like, Stanley Kubrick's like, what are you talking about? I have nothing to do with this. But, you know, that's what you would say if you were the secret director of a fake moon landing video. So, Absolutely you, know. you would. A lot of the moon landing conspiracists focus a lot on the photos that NASA took and say that there's, like, oddities about the film. But a lot of photography experts have proven that that's just, like, a consequence of taking fucking photos on the moon. You know, the moon's got some different rules. I choose to believe them. Mm-hmm. 
Um, another bunch of conspiracies about like human beings not being able to survive on the moon, which is stupid because they were in suits. Um, Fox ran some stupid TV show about how 10 astronauts and civilians related to like the crewed spaceflight program were murdered. And it was part of like an alleged moon cover up, which feels very on brand for Fox. But as far sure. as I'm concerned, in 2008, all of this was definitively closed when Mythbusters busted all of these conspiracy claims and proved they were all wrong. And I go by what Mythbusters says. So that's that. And that's all she wrote. Okay. That's the moon, baby. I didn't get super into like the logistics of like <laughs> and the Soviets, that's the way but, it is. You know, I wanted to keep this America centric. Russia is not sure. in my good graces at the moment, nor should it be in anyone's. I'll, I'll say that much. Um, okay, we covered well, a I lot of that. airspace. We really did a lot. Uh, what what a pun! I, we covered a lot of air and a lot of space. Am I right? We, we sure did. We did that, and I hope you guys were uh, enjoying this long rides. I mean, I don't think it was that long. No, I think we, time's flying. Time is flying, and it is a flat circle, and relativity is a thing. So true. Um, all right, well, love that. Any closing thoughts? I mean, endorsements. Read Station Eleven. Um, watch. Oh, read the read the right stuff by Tom Wolfe. Okay, it's a really oh, interesting look, kind of relevant to both of these. It's um, about the test pilots that like broke the sound barrier and then moves on to be about the astronauts. So, and it's all like very interesting, like post-war family. Great. Cause it's like all these like 22 year olds and their wives on the GI bill, like move into like random Arizona sounds to like become astronauts and like, Oh, it's so good. I feel like I'm not, I'm not doing it justice, but read station 11, read sea of tranquility. Um, and Go take a look at a picture of JFK. Treat yourself. Oh, treat yourself. I got one last closing question for you. Favorite space movie? Okay. What a question. So I hadn't seen... Um, I hadn't seen... Apollo 13 in a really long time. Yeah, I haven't I seen that since it, being... it like, came out. Well, no, no, no. But then I rewatched it and was like, oh, my God, they don't even go to the moon? This movie sucks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so actually, I that, was, that, that was one bummer. of the things that surprised me today. It was like, there's no, like, big Hollywood movie about the moon landing. Maybe because it was a Hollywood production from the start. You just never know. That's that's so true. Um, but I, I mean, I do love gravity. Oh, gravity is so good. I, my favorite um, thing ever is when Sandra Bullock just looks out into the middle distance. Is like, I hate space. Halfway through the movie, I'm like, this is the greatest script I've ever seen in my life. It's so stupid, but I love it. For for hating space. Yeah, she just literally looks out and goes, "I hate space." And the way she delivers it is just like so ridiculous. And it's the silliest, but also most serious movie ever. It's great. Okay, I took it dead seriously, and I loved it. So, oh, it's great. But I... keep her keep her name out your mouth is all I'm saying. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, okay. I would say that's my. What's your favorite space movie? I mean, I am a sucker for Interstellar. Like, I know it's ridiculous. Yeah. Like, I if I'm gonna have an immersive space movie, I do want it to be ridiculous. Like, I I want my expectations to be challenged, and I just thought that was so great. I was also super stoned when i saw it so that definitely helped um so oh, i do great. get it i do understand the appeal of interstellar i just feel like i perhaps am not its target audience no you are certainly not 
But I also like will just make a quick casual pitch to my favorite space odyssey of all time, which, you know, some that know me from my early nascent days would guess that it's Battlestar Galactica, which is high, high up there. You cannot beat Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> but I think I've maybe plugged this before. I've plugged it everywhere. You got to watch The Expanse if you haven't watched it. It was on Sci-Fi. It got canceled. Jeff Bezos saved it. Now it's on Amazon. It's the only good thing Jeff Bezos has ever done in my book. And it's a great show. Um, so there's a lot of good space stuff out there. Keep dreaming. Keep shooting for the stars. If you're the kind of person that's not freaked out by the mechanics of flight, go for it. Let's colonize Mars, baby, but not with Elon Musk. Somebody else, please. Bye. Looking for more Manifest Destiny? Don't worry. We have a website. You can visit us at www.manifestdestinypodcast.com or connect with us over on Instagram at manifestdestinypod. Big fan of the show? Go ahead and leave us a little review on your podcast platform of choice. It would mean the world to us and allow us to keep doing whatever it is we're doing here. And as always, a hearty thank you to our beloved manifestors for listening to Manifest Destiny, a millennial take on the American millennium.